the third weekend to a series on discipleship, which kind of started out as a series on discipleship, and now it's morphing into something different. Is anyone noticing that? Uh, we started out um, looking at um, discipleship, and discipleship is a notion of someone back in, uh, in uh, the first century just wanting to be like their teacher, to learn things from their teacher. We looked at the fact that Jesus uh, puts really high, he's got a really high bar when it comes to discipleship, nothing less than complete and total allegiance and loyalty, which requires that you die to yourself. Uh, the classic scriptures about take up your cross and follow me, you can't, my, can't be my disciple unless you do that, unless you deny yourself. Uh, we looked at that in the first week, we felt the weight of that, that call of Jesus and it doesn't just show up once, like you can't kind of look at that and just go, well, we'll go to the other scriptures, right? And then you find like another 20 that kind of say the same thing. It's like this is like a really key thing for Jesus. The second week we, uh, we actually looked at the fact that, uh, uh, and this is what I've been arguing, is disciple, discipleship is actually a reset. It's like hitting the reset button. We go back to full dependence upon God. We, uh, we go from being an estranged child to someone back in the family and we start taking on the family likeness again. So uh, kind of my argument so far is that discipleship is taking on the family likeness. It's a piece, it's kind of part of what it means to be God's children. You know, no longer are we estranged and isolated, we're family now. So when you're family, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to grow up. <laughs> That's what you do. You grow up. That's what kids do. It's like, grow up. Um... You know, sometimes we say that to, people, to each other, right? So, I wish you'd just grow up, right? And usually that is when someone who's an adult is acting like a child. But there's just a, just a natural reality as well, isn't there, of just needing to grow up. You know, there's, there's a sense in which we need to just mature. Um, you know, I remember uh, one of my kids uh, years ago asked me some questions, some apologetics questions. How do you know that the Bible's true? Now... There was a side to that question. I, I kind of launched in. It's like, oh man, I've done a lot of reading on this, so I can give you some stuff, right? And I got a little way in, and I realised they just don't even have the mental horsepower to understand what they need to understand to know that the thing's true. You, you with me? And it's like there, there was a very, in a very real sense, they needed to grow up, like to actually understand things that they need to understand. They needed to grow up. You know, like you start launching into textual criticism and ancient manuscripts and, you know, we've got five and a half thousand of these and then we've got 20,000 20, in another language and it's like they're just, you know, they're less than 10 and they're just going, oh man, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, no, you just use the same process that any ancient history professor would use in finding out that any ancient document was reliable. It's like, oh, it doesn't work. <laughs> you need to grow up to understand stuff, right? Sometimes you need to grow up because you're immature, but you need to grow up to understand stuff too. We all need to grow and mature. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the idea of growth is ongoing. Never stops. You just keep going. And growing and maturing and continuing to mature is actually really, really normal. And it should always be happening. And I think there's two kind of key areas where I think people grow and they need to grow ongoingly. One of them is actually going to come to an end 
uh, when Jesus comes back and he fixes everything up. One of them, I think, is just going to go on forever. Here's, here's the two uh, areas where I think, as, as a human on this planet, you're just constantly needing to grow. A growth in redeemed likeness and growth in created likeness. See, one of these is actually growing into the person that God made you to be. And the other one is about growing into the likeness of Jesus from a fallen, sinful standpoint. All right? There's a whole bunch of overlap probably between these two, but I think these are two helpful categories. So I want to launch into these today, and we're just going to look at these today. Growth in created likeness. Who are you? Who did God make you to be? I, I watched, and you might think strange things happen in my mind, and they do sometimes, but I watched the daddy long legs crawling up the wall today, right? That's just a weird bit of gear. Has anyone ever thought that before? It's got almost got this pinhead-sized body in the middle of it, and these great big things on the outside trying to get up the wall. I mean, the more you drill into the way that people have been made and the way that they operate the more it just takes more like it does take way more faith to be an atheist than, than to believe in God when you look at the way that things have been made and you know God made every single person in this room unique you're unique I remember this one line you're unique just like everybody else but it is true that you are unique like there's a particular set of skills abilities there's a personality in you and one of the requirements one of the great things that can happen for you is that you just get the opportunity to grow fully into the person that God made you to be are you there yet don't think so I don't know whether you, whether you'll ever be there like there's a destination where you reach and you don't grow anymore I think probably even in heaven you're just going to keep growing and God made you in a way that you would uniquely reflect him. Now, I'm not going to read this all, but we've, we've done this at church before, right? Genesis 1's really clear about how God, verse 27 there, God created man, humanity in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. See, at the very least, you are actually made like God in some way, like a mirror. You, you resemble him. Now, there's been lots and lots of bun fights theologically about what this image of God is. Right? What exactly is it? We're not going to get into that today. I'm happy to have that conversation later if you want. If we put the specificity of uh, exactly what the image of God is in you, uh, like you can just see that there's something in you that resembles Him, that reflects Him. And you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we see that in a really general sense, that everything that God made reflects something about who He is. This is Romans 1.20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Your characteristics, your personality, your intellect, you could just go on and on, right? It's actually made to reflect him. Even if you want to have a bun fight about the image of God concept, you can see that everything that God has made reflects Him. And I want to suggest to you this morning, like your task and my task is, let's just grow into that. Who's, who is the Peter that God made? Let's, Peter needs to just be everything that God made him to be. Can you just go with me for a second? After three, can you all just say your first name? 
One, two, three. Excellent. Well, that's what it was, right? There's a you that God made you to be. And you're meant to grow into that. And it's, and it's not like you're this unique individual, no one's ever heard of it. You're actually reflective of who God is. You're reflective of his character. Now, in Luke chapter 2, and we're not going to read all of this, but in Luke chapter 2, there's a story where Jesus goes and hangs out at the temple and kind of leaves his family, right? And his mum actually shows up and they end up finding him. You guys know this story? They kind of look for him. Three days they're missing him, all right? They end up finding him and she kind of says, she says this to him. She says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, we could spend some time in this passage, right? And the reason why we could is this is a classic example where Jesus in his own life, gave allegiance to his father, God the Father, in preference to his family. If you go back a few weeks, I used a scripture out of Luke that talk, where Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brothers and sisters, and some of you go, that's pretty easy. Um, <laughs> your brothers and sisters and, and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. You know, and some people have said, you know, you know what that is. That's like, you know, maybe in a, Hindu culture where you becoming a Christian means you get ostracized I think that probably is a good example but this is an example of Jesus doing it with his own family a good family and just going no I'm all for the father Um, and that just means sometimes that it looks like I'm against you that's kind of what you get in Luke 2 uh, 41 to 51 there's this curious verse at the end of it here it is And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. You know what he did? He grew up. You see that? He grew up. Like there was a part of Jesus that just grew up in his, in his incarnate, um, earthly, human self. He had to grow up. And... I want to suggest to you this morning again that your job is to grow into who you are made to be. Skills and abilities. Now, I don't... I've said this at the project before, but... I'll say it again. If we all get to heaven and God comes out one day and he says, listen, guys, we're just going to have a 100-metre race, right? And so billions of people get on the starting line, right? It's heaven. So you can have this massive big starting line, right? And God says, when the gun goes off, run as hard as you can, the 100 metres. Now, I don't think that what you're going to get at the end of that race is a dead heat of billions of people. Because God didn't make some people to run as fast as others. True? He just didn't. Some people just don't run as fast. And you might go, yeah, but you know, if they, if they ate right and they, they worked out in the gym and like, I tell you, if they did everything that they needed to do to run as fast as possible, you're not getting a dead heat if everyone was perfect. You with me? Because I just don't think that's the way that God's made it to be. And some of you are going, yeah, I don't run fast, all right? Um, God's given particular, even physical abilities, Right? You know, maybe, maybe it'd be good to run as fast as you can run. You know, you think about, um, you know, I, I've 
spent a lot of time teaching, right? And one of the things that happens in teaching is, and it's not so much anymore, they've kind of changed things up a bit, but it used to be this way. It was like, there's this imaginary 100% kid, all right? And everyone gets measured on that 100% kid. And if you are a, like God's given you a mathematical ability and you've just maxed it out and you've redlined it, right? And you can get 65% redlining about to have a pull a brain muscle, right? It still doesn't count, right? Because you're not 100%. You're not in line with the 100% kid. You with me? You know, I, I think there's probably people that have got a 65% mathematical ability. <laughs> and they should hit that. And if they hit that, that's 100% for them. It doesn't mean they should give up. See, it's more dependent upon effort there, you know? It's not a sin to run slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like amen from some people in the church today. It just isn't a sin to run slow. It's, It's not a sin to have a big nose. Air's free, all right? It just is. It's not a sin to have a big nose. Like, there are just creational ways that God has made you and it's not wrong to be like that. Now, you live in a culture that tells you that some of those things are right and wrong, but it's not wrong. It's not wrong to be like that. And what, what should you be? Well, you should be, to the fullest extent, everything that God made you to be. Get taller. I mean, this is what happens with kids, right? It gets taller. I mean, it's, the Sondergelds are spending a ridiculous amount of money on food, right? We've got four sons. And it's not going to go down anytime soon. It's a regular kind of thing when we're working out our budget. All right. There's another $1,000 a month going in. No, it's not quite that much, but you know what I'm saying. It's like you get bigger. You, the food has to go somewhere, you know. How can you be who God's created you to be? Well, you can get involved in sport. You can get coached in things. I mean, we all learn how to write using a pen, right? And someone taught us how to do that. So, so do that thing. Learn music. Like if God's made you musical, so be musical. Like be everything that God has made you to be. I mean, I've just really been talking about physical realities mostly. What about the intellectual? Like max it out. Max your brain out. And just stretch it and get it to go as hard as you possibly can make it go and lay hold of everything that you possibly can. You don't know everything. You can't. (laughs) You probably heard this. The more that people study, the more they realise they don't know. Is that ironic? The less you know, the more you think you know everything. (laughs) The more you know, the less you realise you know everything. It's a sick irony, right? You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a teenage thing sometimes, right? It's like you think you know everything. I remember I taught with a uh, teacher at the school here and um, he was a pretty witty guy and this probably won't sound very witty when I tell you but he was a really witty, funny guy and he used to have these, you know, he was a manual arts teacher with me and, and uh, we used to teach in the building just down over here and uh, he used to have this line that he'd pull out with uh, teenage boys. He'd pull them in really close and say, come here, just come here. He goes, right. He goes, listen carefully. He goes, now I know that you know everything and you know that you know everything. Now you just have to convince the rest of the world that you know everything. <laughs> and I thought they were onto something there for a while and then it gets to them. So go to school. Go to uni. Go to college. 
There is so much to know. Don't cap yourself, all right? Now, a very special thing happened to me in the last week. I, uh, I think I'm really close to having my thesis finished, all right? And uh, I, I'm almost finished a doctorate, which is just a ridiculous thing. I actually remember sitting in an office in the school here with uh, Diff Crowther, and he sat there and he said to me, he goes, Peter, you know what you should do? You should do a master's and then you should do a doctorate. And I just laughed at him. I thought that was funny. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe a master's, no chance a doctorate. You know, no chance that. And you know why? Because when I went through year 11 and 12, I did two-unit general English in New South Wales, and it was my worst subject. I got 64% in veggie English. You with me? Like you, you have no right to even be thinking about even doing a master's probably. But you know one of the things that God will do, you know, you may have had a dodgy school experience, but one of the things that God's going to do is he's going to call you into stuff and it's going to be beyond you because that's what he does most of the time. And then he's going to equip you to do it. And I'm, I want to tell you something that was amazing. And I say this not for my own reputation's sake, but because it's the work of God in me doing a doctorate is my... My supervisor said to me about six months ago, he goes, you're the most gifted doctoral student I've got. So you tell me that's not God, that you've gone from 64% in two-unit general English to a supervisor saying that, and it's like it's, it blows my brains, all right? And I'm so thankful to the Lord and f- for what God's done in me. But I'll tell you something, I'll be honest with you, my grade in English has been a massive cap on the way that I've looked at things. I just go, I can't do it. And many of you have had to listen to me talk about this. I say, oh, I'm not that smart. I don't really know any stuff. And Don't be limited, folks. Grow. <laughs> Grow. And I'm not telling you all to go out there and study, right? You don't have to study in a, in a formal way to be always learning about stuff. Always growing intellectually. Get better relationally. Grow relationally. Get better at relationships. Become less erratic. Be more faithful. Be more loving. Be a better listener. You ever notice the really, really good listeners have lots of people talking to them? It's a thing, right? It's a genuine thing. Be just get like this is like grow up in being a better listener. Be a better helper. Let me give you a couple of specifics just in this growth in created likeness. Here's, here's the first on wisdom. Wisdom is the capacity to understand and act wisely. That's wisdom. It's natural and normal for you to grow in wisdom across your whole life. Continually grow in wisdom. You know why? Because understanding grows, new situations arise. Does anyone here work with people and every day is different for you? Yeah? What do you need? Well, you need to grow in wisdom all the time. I mean... There's some uh, younger people here who just can't believe this, but Facebook didn't even exist before uh, 2004, right? What does that say? Well, it actually says that there's a wisdom lacking most of the time on Facebook, but there's a wisdom with needing to know how to engage with Facebook, isn't there? I mean, no one had to work that wisdom out before 2004 because it didn't exist. Now, there's still a lot of people who do need to work it out. Culture changes, relationships change. You just need to be growing in wisdom consistently and constantly. 
Proverbs 4 verse 5 to 7 says this. I've whacked a couple of things in brackets to help you to understand it. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. That's the father's mouth. It's a father talking. Do not forsake her wisdom and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight and keep getting it. (laughs) Just keep getting it. It's like don't, don't be an idiot. Who's up for that? Like it, I mean, no one starts their life. I don't think I've ever spoken to a year 10, 11 or 12 boy and just gone, my goal in life is to be an idiot. <laughs> no one makes it their goal, but we kind of end up there if we don't grow in wisdom. And I, I want you to hear here that, that wisdom is not something that you have to do because sin came into the world. It's something that you need to grow in that existed when Adam and Eve were first created. Does anyone remember in Genesis 3 the temptation for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was to be like God? And there's this commentary in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. Listen to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... Right back at the beginning, what are they doing? They're wisdom kind of gatherers. So they're gathering wisdom around the place. That's kind of what you're meant to do. There's, there's nothing wrong with Adam and Eve wanting to be wise. The issue with Adam and Eve is how they go about being wise, not listening to God anymore and doing their own thing. Not through God, under God, God at the centre, them desiring wisdom in an untethered way from God. So you're meant to always be growing in wisdom, but never in a disconnected way, never independently. You'll know some things, and there's people out there that have wisdom and they know stuff, but they'll never know it the way they're meant to know it unless God's in the centre of their world. You might have heard that saying that all truth is God's truth. Um, And it reflects uh, the reality that the world is an expression of God's character. All right. Second thing about growth in created likeness, this is a tad unpleasant, uh, suffering. What a strange thing to throw in here. But I think it's worth us considering the role that suffering has in our created likeness growth. You know, is, is suffering always about ridding us of bad things? Or another way of saying it, is suffering always about discipline? Is it always about the fact that we're doing something wrong and we need something hard and difficult to come into our life to get rid of it? Well, apparently not. (laughs) Apparently not. Look at this uh, scripture from uh, Hebrews... Sorry, let's go back one. Hebrews 2 verse 10. It's talking about Jesus. For it was fitting that he, Jesus for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, listen to this, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, some of you go, well, wasn't Jesus perfect? Yes, he was. (laughs) Didn't get anything wrong. And the uh, writer of Hebrews has got no issues with that at all. So so what's, what's he actually saying? Well, you go across to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 to 9, and you get the insight as to what's actually going on. Speaking of Jesus again, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. See, Jesus wasn't disobedient and suffering made him obedient. It's just that Jesus, and this is what Piper says, Jesus had untested obedience, which was completed through the obedience he showed under the pressure of suffering. Now, what is this like? This is like going to the gym, isn't it? It's like going to the gym. You know, you go to the gym and, and what's God doing? Well, he's putting 140 kilos on the bar. And he's not going to destroy you with it, but he is going to put a little bit more on it than what he put on last time. Why? Because obedience that just happens when you're sitting in a chair, sipping a cool drink, is just not as good as the obedience that happens when someone's under the pump and they're able to come through. You with me? So he's going to put some weights, he's going to put some kilos on the bar so that you can be obedient, you can grow in ways that you're not going to grow without a bit of pressure. You know, you can have sore muscles because they're uh, damaged and hurt, but you can also have sore muscles because you used them and you worked really hard. And that's the way that muscles actually get stronger. The muscles, in a sense, get complete by suffering. And that's one of the things that God's going to do in you, and it's got nothing to do, there's going to be times it's got nothing to do with your sin. It's just like he's going to put a whole bunch of kilos on the bar and he's going to say, I want you to bench press that. And do you know what? You will. In the end, you will. And it'll be about completing you and finishing you off. You know, you go right back to Genesis chapter 2 and you find out that one of the, the classic realities, and this is something that Welsh talks about, one of the classic realities of being human and being part of God's royal family is you get tested. That's what happens. That's the way it works. Adam and Eve... Don't eat from that tree. What's God doing? Well, he's doing what he does. He tests people. That's what, royal, that's what happens to the royal family. Test them. So Jesus shows up on the scene thousands of years later. What's the first thing that happens to him before he starts his ministry? He gets tested. He goes into the wilderness. He gets tested. That's what is meant to happen with kids is dad tests them to grow them and to strengthen them. And you know what they're meant to do? They're meant to pass the test. Failure is not normal for God's children. Passing the test is normal for God's children. You know, God's going to take you through suffering, not because fundamentally you're a bad person. He's going to take you through suffering sometimes because it's part of completing you as a person. Now... I'm going to transition now into uh, growth in redeemed likeness. Are you doing okay? You doing all right? Here's a good question. Um, what makes people stunted? Because people stop growing, right? Or their growth gets stunted. Now, what causes it? Well, lots and lots of things <laughs> cause it. But in a nutshell, our fallenness, our depravity, turning away from God, believing lies, self-worship. What unwinds and blocks natural good growth? It's sin. 
Sin has a way of making an adult a child again. Have you noticed that? It just does. Sin itself is immaturity. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11 says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Like it meant to grow up. <laughs> 1 Peter 2 verse 1 to 3, same thing. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, I, one of the things I think is going on here is that those are immature. If you're, if, you're, if you're a child of God, that's immaturity. You need to grow up. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if, you, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this from Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Do you see that? It's like you're meant to have grown up a bit. But you're immature. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Listen to verse 14. Hear the, the wisdom thing going on here. The, just the growth in wisdom. This is normal. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now there are lots and lots of places. We could go on probably for weeks and weeks looking at the things that could stunt someone. And we're not going to spend weeks and weeks on it. We're going to finish it up today. You know, you believing lies, pride, being blinded, you could just not see stuff. I mean, you know, one of the things I think in our culture that is pretty much taken for granted in our culture is that selfishness, I mean, in one sense, our culture encourages selfishness. In another sense, I think people intrinsically know that it's not a good thing. And that it's immature. Like if you have someone that's really, really committed to selfishness and some kind of narcissism, people just know that that's actually not a good thing. How do I know that? Because all the good movies that touch people are about people being unselfish. <laughs> that's what they are. I mean, you can go through one after the other and talk about every love story and the sacrifice and the unselfishness that happens in the middle of those. Why? Because I think people realise that pig-headed, proud not listening to anyone, not being teachable, just wanting everything to go my way at the expense of everyone else is actually immature and childish. True? It's just being a child. You know, this whole notion... <laughs> we could spend a lot of time on this, right? But like, people not being teachable. That, that's just like... That's, just a, that's like the dumbest thing ever. Now, have I been unteachable? For a lot of my life? Absolutely I have. If you think about, like seriously, all of us have kind of just got like a pinhead, right? In terms of what there is to know in the universe, we live for 75, 80 years maybe, and we're, we're, we, you, get, you get up in a plane, you can't even see people anymore. We're this speck on the universe. We don't know anything. Like it's like the dumbest thing ever that someone would just not be teachable anymore. Is anyone with me on that? Like it doesn't make any sense. It's like, really? You think you've got nothing to learn? See, this is what uh, sin does to you, I think. It just makes you stupid. That's what it does. It makes you stupid and it defaces you. Underneath every sin, what we talk about at the project here, is disordered worship. 
That's what it is. We love and we orient our lives around things that are not God and it makes you dumb. Every single time you do that, it makes you dumb. So I'd love for you to turn. We're going to look at a scripture and we're just going to read it through. Isaiah chapter 44. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to head up the back and grab one. If you've got one, head to Isaiah 44. We typically use the ESV for uh, um, church here on Sunday mornings, but you're welcome to use other versions, but just letting you know. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. Now, think about the fact that we're not just talking about a totem pole when we're talking about idols. We're talking about something that has the affection and the love of your heart, whether it be your own comfort or chocolate or money or pleasure, whatever it is. This is uh, verse 9 of Isaiah 44. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? What's the answer to that question? Sorry? We do. Yeah, stupid people. (laughs) All right? That's kind of it, right? It is all of us. It's like people who are crazy. That's the kind of people that do that. Verse 11, Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. Verse 12, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. What an amazing man. It's like now he's hungry because he made a tool and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he's faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. So he turns it into a fire. Some of the tree he makes into a fire. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before, of, before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roast, roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. See that? This dude has just gone stupid, right? Just become crazy. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. He can't even say, well, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Like he, he doesn't get it. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And verse 20 is just a telling statement. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He's gone stupid. <laughs> you know, and maybe, maybe what this idol maker needs is a loving brother or sister to come up to him and say, stop being an idiot, man. 
I've just stopped being an idiot. Like, you've just been an idiot doing that stuff. It doesn't make any sense. And sometimes, and I'm not encouraging this, right? So don't, don't go out and start being abusive to each other and blame it on me. But sometimes in the church, I think it'd be helpful for us to be a little bit freer with our communication and just be able to go up to each other in a loving way and just say, are you, are you serious? Are you insane? Like, that is just the dumbest thing. Like, you're just being stupid, man. Like, like don't be an idiot. And there's a reason Jesus called us sheep, right? Right? Because we do dumb stuff. It's like we go off into a bit of pasture and we just lie down a long way away from the water and we just lie there until we die. <laughs> that happens, right? We just do dumb sheep stuff. That's what we do. And it's like sometimes I think, you know, it'd be really cool if we could just in a loving way be able to go up to each other and say, Pete, you've just been an idiot and you just, that's stupid, man. Like, do you see how stupid that is? You should just stop doing that. Some of you just going, oh, I've just got a license to go and call Pete an idiot whenever I uh, see something going on. And if you do it in a loving way, I need to listen to it. You know the sign of growth in wisdom? Here's a sign of growth in wisdom. You're able to receive rebuke and correction. There's a sign of growth in wisdom, isn't it? Proverbs 15, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Now, you can be a sinner. This is, I was reading something from John Piper this week. He says, you can be a sinner and be against God, but when you're a fool, you're against God and you're against yourself. It's true, right? It's like, stop being, like, you just, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Proverbs 9, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will, still, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Let me, let me give you two really quick application points from what I'm saying here about growing in redeemed likeness, imitating Christ, being like Christ. Temptation. Are you growing up in the way that you handle temptation? Now, I'm going to give you a cred here, right? I bet you are. Do you know why? Because I bet there's a whole bunch of temptations that used to get you that don't get you anymore, or at least not regularly. You kind of look at it, you go, yeah, no, I can see the lies in that, I can see the trick in that, and I've tasted the bitterness of giving in to that, and I'm not going back there. So anyone with me on that? You've seen stuff like that? You have, right? You've, you've actually grown up a bit, you know? Well done. That's what you're supposed to be doing. But what about the other areas in your life? Can you see areas in your life where you need to grow up a bit in the way that you handle temptation? Can you see the slavery? Can you walk past it and not need it? Just go, I don't need it. Or do you fall for it? You know, like... One of my missions, I reckon, just in the church here is like, would, would God just turn us into a people that force the devil to go to plan B? Because <laughs> you know that in your life, right? You have these patterns in your life and he's still doing plan A and he has been for the last 25 years, right? He doesn't need another strategy because I just give in every time it happens. 
You know, let's be a people that grow up in the way that we handle temptation and force the devil to go to a second plan, a backup plan. Is anyone with me on that? That's a good plan. You know, if you're still giving in on plan A of the devil to trip you up and to get you, you seem to grow up. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a very uncomfortable verse, which uh, many of us would like to rewrite. Um, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he'll get you out of it but see the way that he gets you out of it that's actually not what it says the way he gets you out of it is more like a gym than a holiday here it is but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape what's the last bit that you may be able to stand up under it or endure it. How do you get better? How do you grow up in the way that you handle temptation? Well, getting you out of it all the time is not going to help you to grow up, is it? So what's God's gig? Nah, Peter, I'm just going to leave you right in it. I'm going to walk with you in it. When you fail, we're going to get this thing right. And I'm going to stay with you, and I'm not going to fly off the handle with you, but we're just going to get this thing done. We'll get it sorted. That's what we're doing. So the gig here is, I'm going to show you how to handle it when you're under it, not get you out of it when you're under it. All right. Last one. Discipline. Now, do you know what the point of discipline is? The point of discipline is self-discipline. Hear me? The point of discipline is self-discipline. So parents, your goal in disciplining your children is to do yourself out of a discipline job. That's what it is. Your goal is not to have a job of needing to discipline your children for the next 80 years, if you last that long. You would have failed your job at discipline if you're disciplining your children in 20 years' time. The point of discipline is self-discipline. See, if you need to be disciplined, you need to be disciplined because you're immature. And you need to grow up. That's why you get disciplined. See, when you grow up and you're self-controlled and you're self-disciplined, you need less discipline. You know, I remember a... Um, a kid saying to me at the school here that I was teaching, he said, <laughs> he goes, you know, we're teaching him stuff. It's like, man, look, just get wise, you know? Like, learn all this stuff and get wise so you don't have to make mistakes. You know what he said? He goes, I learn from my own mistakes. And I didn't say it, but you know, that if, you, if you're committed to that, it's like, well, you're a fool. That's what you are. If you, if you have to make every mistake to learn every piece of wisdom that you want to get, you're a fool. What does discipline do? Discipline forces us to engage with the things that we don't really engage with without pressure and without pain. It's reflective of the fact that we aren't turning the way that we need to turn. Now the scriptures are really, really clear about the fact that God loves us and and a loving father in Hebrews 12, a loving father does what? He disciplines, all right? He disciplines. That's what he'll do. 
But the point is that you'd actually grow up and be more self-controlled. That's the point. Titus 2, verse 2 to 6. Can you go there really quickly? I just want to see this one. I want you to see this one with your own eyes. It's uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 2 to 6. Listen to the way that the natural shape of things ought to be in the church. Uh, Titus 2, verse 2 to 6. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. You see an older man out of control, that's weird. Right? That is not normal. That is not normal. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You get the feeling there, like it's all about self-control. Like, let's just grow up. So here's a big idea uh, about discipline. If you need discipline to grow, it shows that you're immature. That's a good thing and God's a good father and he will discipline you. He'll bring trouble into your life to discipline you. But if you need discipline to grow up, it shows that you're immature. If you need trouble to turn you back to God... There's an immaturity there. Suffering will always be needed. We covered that in the created likeness. But we must not depend upon it. If we need to depend upon it, it shows that there's something that's actually wrong. Now, I want to give you some good news. Here's the good news is that God is 150 million percent committed to getting the job finished in you. And if he is committed to getting the job finished in you, you can't lose. You're going to make it. You are absolutely going to make it. Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You know, you might have a bad day or a bad bad week or a bad month. Someone said to me a while ago, it's like I've had a bad decade. I said, well, that's getting to be a pretty big life pattern if you start to talk about 10-year lots, right? But you, it could have been really bad and it could have been bad for a while and you could, have, you could just blow out and it's like I've been talking about temptation. You just go, yeah, like I never have a problem with it because I just give in every time it comes, all right, and my life is just not going very well. You might be one of those people who just kind of feel like that. And here's the encouragement for you this morning is that God is committed to your completion. He's, complete, he's committed to the finished job. All right? So even when you fail and your commitment wanes and you're not that committed to the finished job, He's committed for you. And His Spirit is in you and He's going to do stuff in you to make sure it all gets done. I want to finish with a longish C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. And uh, it's in the chapter, and the chapter's called Nice People or New Men. 
And um, he's answering the question, if Christianity is true, why are not all Christians obviously nicer than all non-Christians? <laughs> is anyone with me on that one? Or Lewis, with Lewis on it? He's, in this section, he's just finished talking about how being nice is good, but it doesn't really get you anywhere in the redemption kind of scheme of things. All right, you ready? This is a beautiful quote. But if you are a poor creature, aka not nice, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you're trying to drive. Isn't that a great line? Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he'll fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Some of the last will be first and some of the first will be last. Niceness, wholesome, integrated personality is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. That's probably the one that we're in, right? For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man, listen to this, to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are beginning to grow when it cannot do so, and at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings, may even give it an awkward appearance. Maybe the music team could uh, come up now. Folks, this is the good news, right? We need to grow up. And the Lord knows that you've got a wretched machine to drive. <laughs> he just does. So don't give up. He's, uh, he's into it. He is so into it. Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us how much he's into it. Don't give up. Grow up. Keep growing up. 